a stunning misfire. That's Nick Shager of The Daily Beast about one of our featured reviews. That's right, it's called The Sun from Hugh Jackman. He's actually nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actor. It's one of our new movies this week. Also, All Quiet on the Western Front. Finally got around to seeing this war film which came out a couple months ago on Netflix. Argentina 1985, hot off Argentina's World Cup victory. A foreign film which is nominated for uh, Best International Feature Film with the Golden Globes. And our old movie this week, The Bucket List. I'd never seen it. 15th anniversary this year. So I saw finally get around to watching The Bucket List. And our wild card is the Golden Globe nominations. A pleasure as always to have you here on Cinephile. As we say, Happy New Year. And hope everybody had a wonderful, happy holiday season. Of course, good to see my buddy Chris Cody back once again. Cody, how was your holiday season? We did it, man. Uh, you know, it's always weird when you take a long break. We had a, like a full week off, and it's like that first day back, I feel slow. It's like I need to talk today. It's just like it's just weird after a week off turning it back on and doing jazz hands again. Yeah, definitely. You're a little sluggish. I know what you mean. Everyone kind of takes a little few days to kind of ease back into things, but it's good. We made it. We're back. It's another year. Another year cinephile, so that's good news for us here on the podcast. Mike Ryan was texting me about Babylon, so he saw that. Didn't like it. That was a fun little back and forth, um, but I want to get right to it. We guys, I mentioned the old and the new, the wild card. Next week on the podcast, uh, our wild card is going to be a review of the Golden Globes. which are taking place on Tuesday. Programming notes, not on Sunday. Golden Globes are taking place on next Tuesday. So next really? week to the file, we're recording on Wednesday. A little odd how normally you think of the award show is always on a Sunday. But Golden Globes next Tuesday. So next week's Cinephile is going to be coming out on Wednesday is when we record it. Also, new movies involving Tom Hanks, A Man Named Otto. That'll be our feature review next week here on the podcast. What's the reason for that? What's the reason for a Tuesday Golden Globes? I haven't looked there? into it. I really don't know. I'm just going to assume they're scared of the NFL. They don't want to mess with week 18 of the NFL. They're like, you know oh, that's what? That's true. We're not going head to head with Packers lines. Forget that. Uh, it's actually, and it's a year hiatus for the Golden Globes. For those who recall, a year ago, they faced so much controversy, they weren't even televised a year ago. So they're like, you know what? We're not stepping on anybody's toes. We used to take Sunday. Last year, we were MIA. This year, we'll just take Tuesday. We're not going to offend anybody. Golden Globe preview is indeed coming up. But as promised, Nobody cares more than my buddy Alpha Hill one. He's like, I want your top ten. Here's my top ten. Honorable mentions as well. I want to go by two worst films of the year. Normally on these uh, podcasts, we just freestyle it, right? We just make a few comments, have some fun. I always take these very seriously. I write them out, and away we go. All Quiet on the Western Front. One of my honorable mentions. Featured review this week. The review's coming up. But first off, honorable mention. Just when you think the genre is truly well-explored, beaten-up terrain, here comes this German film based on the classic book. Visceral, violent, it packs a veritable bloody punch. Next honorable mention. George Carlin's American Dream. Judd Apatow is arguably the finest comedic voice of his generation. Despite his critically acclaimed comedies, he deserves even more kudos for giving back to his mentors. Gary Shandling, that's right, The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling was one of the best documentaries ever about the creative process. An eight and a half for comics, this time he pays tribute to George Carlin. American Dream details how he was more than just seven dirty words you can't say on television, but also a comic who underwent his own evolutionary process while dealing with the demons of cocaine and the death of his first wife. George Carlin's American Dream, honorable mention. Next up, Sydney. An affectionate tribute to the first black actor to win an Academy Award told primarily through his own words. Poitier enjoyed one of the finest years ever by an actor in 1967, but later fought obsolescence in the 70s as audiences were turned off by his clean-cut, straight-arrow persona. However, Poitier endured, although he also had an affair which had lasting consequences on his children from his first marriage. Poitier remained authoritative and dignified throughout his life and much admired by the likes of Denzel Washington and Oprah Winfrey, who have produced this project. Next up, the inspection. The boot camp as life microcosm feels like a tired trope, but not in the hands of first-time writer-director Elegance Bratton, who based the movie on his real-life experiences dealing with prejudice as a young gay black man. Jeremy Pope, Golden Globe nominee for Best Actor Drama, is all tightly coiled intensity, fighting inward like a bottle about to burst, <laughs> but able to find platonic tenderness in a military superior. Gabrielle Union in her small role is a revelation as a mother who will not accept her son's sexual orientation. Consequences be damned, also based on a true story. 
And next up, Babylon, the year's most polarizing picture. I love the setting. 1920s Hollywood, two major stars, Brad Pitt as a fading movie star, Margot Robbie as a girl whose ambition matches her chutzpah, the dazzling production design, jazzy score, an outrageous depiction of, of depravity, elephantine dumps, golden showers, a dwarf on a phallus pogo stick, and that's just in the first two minutes. It's Oscar winner Damien Chazelle going for broke wild with movie love and drunk with ambition. Yes, it's bloated, self-indulgent, and the ending is excessive. But Babylon is also undeniably audacious and richly entertaining. Made more so in one of the year's funniest scenes as Robbie attempts the transition to talkies. There's your honorable mentions. Now it's time to number 10, Armageddon time. Hopefully we have some production, by the way, Cody. I don't know if you're going to get like a yeah, announcer you. voice here. Number 10. 10. Armageddon time. <laughs> Writer-director James Gray makes the most personal film of his career and nobody gave it a passing glance. Growing up as a Jew with liberal, well-meaning parents in 1980s Oregon, he's, he has to deal with a couple of parents, one of whom is either one minute beating his child, one minute he's showing tenderness. That's Jeremy Strong as the father and the frustrated Anne Hathaway as his mother. The child seeking attention, seeking direction, and he gets it from his wise yet tough grandfather with the reliably brilliant two-time Oscar winner, Anthony Hopkins. Later, the young boy strikes up a friendship with a young, similar outcast and a black child, and they plot their escape from their homes. It's observant, it's thoughtful, and it's quietly moving. And like I said, it's unfortunate. No one really gave it a damn, but you should go check out Armageddon Time. Nine. We're going back-to-back Jewish coming-of-age stories. Yes, it should have been called the Spielbergs, as Chris Cody points out, but The Fablemans is Prodigy Steven's <laughs> expensive $40 million home movie, the most expensive therapy to hit the big screen. Reflective with comic moments, including a bully getting his comeuppance, it's much more bittersweet than an expected nostalgia trip from Spielberg. Michelle Williams is a new-age mother seeing a therapist and seeking more of her marriage, and Paul Dano, a brilliant emblem of quiet dignity who can't quite grasp his son's fascination with cameras and motion pictures. They are the standouts from an excellent cast, including a scene-stealing Judd Hirsch cameo. Eight, Fire of Love. Our favorite movies recall a great deal about ourselves, and so, being something of an obsessive myself, I can appreciate the fanaticism of two volcanologists, a married French couple who want nothing more out of life than to chase the red and black volcanoes that they find enrapturing. I watched this, by the way. Let me finish my review, that I want more of your thoughts sorry, here. Sorry, sorry. In the 80s, women fawned over Magnum P.I. The last few years, people have seen the rise of MAGA, yet this couple just cares about magma together bound by their inquisitive eccentricity they literally meet their fatal end but doing what they love most one might say their hearts were full empty with passion you and your wife saw it fire of love talk to me i mean we were just i was like we got to watch this i was like honey admit like i told her on the front end i was like doesn't end well but this is what they loved and my wife was into it it was like you said it was it, it's a little somber and the whole time because you know the whole time that this where this ends but it was interesting and it was it's nothing i would ever want to do no i was gonna say you and i definitely not big on the volcano although i just learned so much more about the black volcanoes like i just i love a good red volcano but the black volcano is oh no oh, bueno it's the good stuff or the bad stuff I don't know number seven i'm it. glad you've seen by the way now see one of the movies on this top 10 i'm so doing this now i'm gonna be better in the new year of watching these on the front end so i can actually contribute to the podcast but i've <laughs> i feel like over this break i watched a couple movies that we did that okay, have just good. been they once you review them if i haven't seen them they go on my list so right. i end up seeing these things months later Okay. Well, hopefully you'll see uh, a couple more here on this list. Seven. That would be The Whale. Darren Aronofsky cribbing from his own playbook again. Take a former beloved star and give him a comeback role as a washed-up failure seeking one last chance at meaning and redemption. Of course, Aronofsky did this previously with Mickey Rourke and The Wrestler. This time he does it with Brendan Fraser, gifted with the role of a lifetime. It really is. And much like the main character, he's dealing with a lot here. This is a 600-pound man mourning the death of his gay lover. Hong Chow is sympathetic as his caregiver, imploring him to seek medical help with the end near. But his teenage daughter, played by Sadie Sink, who is pretty much a sadist, he abandoned her. She is raging with scorn for this massive heap of her father, seemingly chained as a prisoner to his couch. He's teaching an online course, loving literature, in particular Moby Dick. And speaking of the latter, a religious proselytizer surprises Charlie as he's vigorously masturbating to gay porn. It's an empathetic exploration of regret, self-loathing, faith, and optimism. 
Currently, Frazier is the favorite to win an Academy Award, and especially after you witness the grueling final 50 minutes, you can see why. Now, what's confusing, you're right, I have not seen this movie, but I see there's some contradictions here with he's this level, like this genuine, kind, seemingly kind character, yet he was a terrible father. Does that flow in the movie? Because it seems like two traits that would go like, that. it doesn't make sense that he could be both this kind soul and a bad father. Yeah, I think it must have been he was a generally kind, sympathetic, loving person, but then followed his heart and passion, cheats on his wife with a man, and then abandons them because he uh, is swept away by love. But okay, so it's deals like just with dealing with his own issues of coming out and stuff. So it was... Yeah, but, but he okay. has clearly a great amount of regret over the decision and feels horrible what he's done to his family because he, he's trying to make amends here as the end is near. Yeah. Six. This is going to be, by the way, a review next week. I'm saving these. I don't want to do too many foreign films in one week. We're already doing two foreign films this week, so next week I'm going to give you a full review, but it's already going to tell you right now to my top ten. Number six, Decision to Leave. Talk about Wheelhouse, a Hitchcockian romantic thriller in the vein of Vertigo from international auteur Park Chan-wook. It's my highest rated foreign film of the year. His film, Old Boy, still has me shaking my head in awe. For this movie, the Korean filmmaker won Best Director at the Cannes Film Festival, and it's easy to see why. It's masterfully directed. It's a marvel of tone and pacing. His framing and tracking shots are so seductive as the story is about a police detective trying to keep his feelings at bay for a woman who is a murder suspect after the sudden death of her husband. An homage that Alfred would appreciate is awfully bloody good, and much like the main character battling sleep apnea, it's destined to keep you up at night as it did for me. The camera work alone will make you swoon. We'll get a full review of Decision to Leave next week. For now, let me tell you, it's my number six film of the year. Five. Elvis. Austin Butler gives a star-making performance as he shakes, rattles, and rolls to giving the musical icon his due. It's a version of Presley that only a hypnotic Baz Luhrmann could give us. Flamboyant, colorful, enigmatic, and buoyant, especially in those arresting scenes of Elvis writhing around on stage, making female hearts melt. The ending with Elvis crooning a melancholy can't-help-falling-in-love didn't leave a dry eye in the theater. It's mesmerizing, and it's the best musical of the year. Number five is Elvis. Number it's another four. one I watched weeks after. You did? You liked Elvis? Yeah, I liked it. I liked it. But yeah, I wasn't like riveted to like. Yeah, that's how I. I mean, it. it was Tom Hanks' performance that detracted from it for you. It did. Like, I agreed with that one. Like, I don't know if the jury was tainted on that one because you told me, but like, I it was distracting. Hanks yes. is Hanks is fat bastard. Four. Everything, everywhere, all at once. It doesn't always work, but in a world bombarded by Xerox sequels and a depressing lack of original thought at the movie theaters, all hail this wild sci-fi make from the director's Daniels. The first film from indie darling A24 to gross $100 million, and it took about 17 weeks to get there. This was the little engine that could at multiplexes this year, defying categorists as her central character works in a laundromat that ends up going through different dimensions as different unique characters. It feels like The Matrix, except it isn't. The ultimate film sinks movie icon Michelle Yeoh, who I think deserves the Oscar for Best Actress, and let's only hope when she wins an Academy Award, she'll levitate over the crowd with hot dog fingers. Also, as previously discussed here in Cinephile, the butt plug scene, unforgettable. Everything Everywhere All at Once is number four. Three! My highest rated documentary of the year, The Last Movie Stars. Ethan Hawke has long been a gifted polymath, a four-time Oscar nominee, twice for acting and twice for writing a published author of short stories, novels, and kids' books. Here he shines a light on one of the most revered Hollywood couples of all time as a documentarian, and his focus is Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. Newman was an Oscar winner, six-time nominee, who should have also won for The Verdict, along with Scorsese's Color of Money, and he was impossibly handsome. But he also left his first wife, which had lasting repercussions on his children. He was a functioning alcoholic, and he was plagued by insecurity, especially early in his career. But it's Woodward who comes off as indelible, a gifted and underrated actress who forfeited success for the love of the family. Hawk, taking a page of the Al Pacino's Looking for Richard, makes himself a character in the documentary, exulting with fellow actors like Sam Rockwell, gleeful over a somewhat cranky Scorsese playing film scholar on both stars' work. To hear Marty talk about Newman's underrated comedic chops in Slapshot is a hoot. 
and Hawk is also talking to Newman's family over Zoom. It's ingenious casting of George Clooney reading the words of Paul Newman and Laura Linney as Woodward bring the deceased thrillingly to life. Number three, the last movie stars. Two, bones and all. A cannibal love story isn't exactly a marketer's oh, yeah. dream. But that's what Luca Guadagnino does with his evocative road trip movie. A modern day Badlands, as gorgeous as a Malick film, Taylor Russell is a teenage girl, abandoned by her father who finds a tasty soulmate in the somewhat androgynous Timothee Chalamet. With undeniable chemistry, these two outcasts search for meeting amidst the desolation in addition to some nourishment. Oscar winner Mark Rylance not only chews the scenery as a veteran cannibal, but he gobbles it all up. Tasty till the last bite. And Michael Stuhlbarg with David Gordon Green are truly creepy and haunting as a cannibal voyeur buddy team. It is a horror film, a comedy, a dark film about alchemy all moved into one. But ultimately, I thought it was unforgettable. It's bones and all. I got to check that one out. I remember you talking about that one. That one uh, yeah, I got to check that out. One. And our best picture of the fear. That's right. Drum roll, please. The Banshees of Inner Sharon. Okay, sorry. I'm tired of your feckin' mouth and your donkey shite. So tells the agreed Brendan Gleeson to a quizzical Colin Farrell. After he informs him, he no longer wants to be his friend on their idyllic Irish Isle. This deceptively simple premise for a film ends up as the seed by which sprouts the most colorful, distinctive, and original film of the year. Talented writer-director Martin McDonough, whose three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri was one of the best of the last decade, understands, like the great David Mamet, a fellow playwright, how to make gutter poetry from these working-class stooges a work of art. Is it all an allegory for civil war, with people fighting without explanation, chopping off their fingers? Or is it just droll Irish absurdism? Either way, enjoy the poetry, enjoy the scenery, and the quartet of performances which could all be feted come Oscar time. My favorite film of the year, The Banshees of Inner Sharon. All right, now it's time to assess the year as a whole. Now, if you're ranking, how long have you how long would how long have you considered yourself a cinephile? Like a guy that I'm, I know my movies. Let's say 35 years. Okay, sure. So I'm, I'm turning 40. I'm 44. So I was, since I was seven. <laughs> okay, so no, no, no. My bad. Maybe okay, since I was, I was giving, 14. Yeah, I was thinking, let's say 30 years. Yeah. Okay. Let's call 30 years. Okay. So you've had 30 years of movies. This doesn't feel, this is just me. Like I haven't been with you for all these. This yeah. doesn't feel like a top 20 year. You're right about that. Movies. This is probably one of the worst years in recent memory. Because right. even the last years, there's always at least one or two movies that really cut through that you go, you know what? I can't wait to really watch that again. And as this was a lot of really good movies. Like those top two, like good. I don't feel like you loved either of those. Like they're they're good movies, but I, yeah. I feel like you're like, I don't know. I just didn't feel like those, none of those are going in your like top 30 all time. Or... No, if you go back to the last few years, like The Irishman's a film that I loved. Uh, Parasite is a film that I loved. Like, yeah. Those are movies I couldn't wait to watch again. The Shape of Water, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Like for the last five years, those are films that stand out to me. I like, go, oh my God, yeah. it's a great film. Get Out is a great film. Like, But these movies, like a lot of them are very good, definitely enjoyable. I mean, Decision to Leave, I may have underrated at number six. I can't wait to watch it again. Like that's, that's pretty shocking when you watch them and go, I can't wait to watch it again. Whereas to your point, like Bones and All, it's my number two film of the year, but I can't imagine watching it anytime soon. You say I mean, it with a smile you're like yeah it's just so it was almost more memorable than great well listen i I, as you heard by the reviews i get points for originality and for being different when you watch as many movies as i do you know a lot of this stuff becomes like utter claptrap right it's so recycled so if there's something that's different i'm like okay that obviously always counts as a lot of points it's why the late gene siskel he called fargo one of his top 10 films ever and I remember at the time going like, wow, this guy's seen like 20,000 movies. But he said, the thing about Fargo is it's so many different types of movies all into one. It's like, you know, a feminist drama. It's a comedy. It's a road trip movie. It's a murder mystery. It's violent. It's a film noir. So he's like, movies like that are always the ones that tend to cut through. But your overarching point is absolutely correct, which is that this was not a particularly strong year for movies. You're absolutely right. Normally in the past, you go, all right. There's like, especially with this year, you know, there's three or four that were really strong you know, the Elvis, everything, everywhere, all at once, the last movie stars. And you're waiting, like, for the big films to come out, big films to come out. Like, all right, here we go, here we go. Even The Whale, which I loved. I mean, Rosillo texted me the other day. He couldn't wait to watch it. He goes, what'd you see? He goes, I just watched it. He goes, I hated it. He goes, I was angry when I left the theater. Uh, Babylon, I have his honorable mention. Mike Ryan hated it. He's texting me. He's like, bro. Yeah. Like, pe- people are definitely very loving I, and hated on these and movies. And I know this. I'm not doing this just to mess with you. But it kind of feels, as we head into Oscar season, the movie with the best buzz this year 
No, that's <sighs> I'm just saying, dude, if, if there was ever a year for that type of movie to win Best Picture, it would be in a year where it's a bad year for movies. I'm just saying, it kind of it seems like a perfect recipe for a, admittedly not a great year for movies for you yeah. and this movie that you don't like, but the world loved it. So I'm just saying, if there was ever a recipe for that type of movie winning Best Picture, this might be it. Yeah, here, here's the case that you could make for Top Gun Maverick. As you said, there's no clear-cut frontrunner. Even from the past years, there's always generally a frontrunner. Nomadland was the favorite from a year ago, and it won Best Picture, or two years ago now, Best Picture, Best Director, et cetera. Yeah. Um, you know, generally, you kind of have a vibe. The Irishman, you knew, $150 million film, Scorsese, De Niro, Pesci, didn't win, but you knew it was going to be an Oscar frontrunner. It got 10 nominations. To your point, this year, there's no film that you're really like, okay, that's going to win Best Picture. Like, The Fablemans from Spielberg, I mean, it's grossed like $12 million. It's like one of the lowest grossing films ever yeah. of his career. Maybe they just they love Spielberg, they love him. Here's your best picture. Maybe it's James Cameron getting another best director. Maybe it's Avatar 2 rewarded. But the case for Top Gun would be this. In a year in which people have not been going to the movies, as I said previously, we're at box office now of 60% of 2019. A tenth of that is one movie, which is Top Gun Maverick. That definitely was the, the movie that caught people to go back to the theaters. So if the Oscars look at it on a whole and go, okay, this was a, definitely a well-liked movie by audiences and critics. And you know, in a, in a significant manner and help people go back to the theaters, this would be an emblem almost to say, look, guys, this is important to go back to the movies. Yeah. You all love Top Gun Maverick? Hey, we're going to give it best picture. It's yeah. entertaining. It's fun. And here we go. It would be my worst nightmare, but that would be the case for it to win <laughs> Top Gun. I mean, I, it, at this point, it's definitely going to get nominated for best picture, which is appalling to me. But the only good news, and we'll get to the Golden Globe nominations, the only good news is Tom Cruise was not nominated for best actor. That's my only salvation. Right. There's still some belief he may get nominated for an Oscar. By the way, Oscar nominations, in case you're curious, come out January 24th. It's a no-brainer. Top Gun will be up for best picture. Cruise, hopefully, will not be up for best actor. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, uh, let's get to a few reviews here. Uh, first one was The Sun, <laughs> which I couldn't wait to see because it's from Florian Zeller, who is a very, very talented director. He was the one who did The Father, uh, which for Anthony Hopkins won Best Actor. Remember that big shocking moment at the Oscars? They, they set it up so that Best Actor would be the last award. We all thought it was going to be Chadwick Boseman, and instead a gasp of the audience as it's Anthony Hopkins for The Father. Anthony Hopkins was asleep. The man's from Wales. It was like four in the morning. He woke up the next morning. Anthony, you won an Oscar. I did? Yeah, you won for The Father. It was amazing. <laughs> Uh, and that film is brilliant. If you haven't seen The Father, you should check it. I still can't believe how great his performance was. So, with that pedigree, Zeller is the director. He co-wrote this script. It's based on his own play, and it's written also with Christopher Hampton. Here's the story. Peter has his busy life with his new partner, Beth, and their baby thrown into disarray when his ex-wife, Kate, turns up with their teenage son, Nicholas. Great cast. Hugh Jackman, he's nominated, as I mentioned, for Golden Globe. Best actor. He plays Peter. Vanessa Kirby, she was excellent. Pieces of Woman on Netflix. She plays Beth. Uh, and then you've got Anthony Hopkins, who does show up for a camp. He's got one scene, which is hysterical. Just playing the father from hell. He's awesome. And uh, Laura Dern, by the way, plays the ex-wife Kate. So amazing pedigree. And yet the film is an absolute dud. I, and I kind of knew it going <laughs> in because I'd seen the reviews were poor. But I got the screener sent to me. And again, I like Florian Zeller. So I got to give these movies a chance. But it is like every bad movie of the week that you've ever seen. Like every cliche possible. Now... I want to be clear, these stories are very important about teenage boys going through depression and anxiety and not sure exactly why they're upset, but just feeling disconnected. Of course, these movies are important. There's a lot of people going through these, but the movie itself was just so drab. And despite the best efforts by his cast, it never feels elevated belong 
beyond a movie of the week. Like it feels like one of these movies that you and I would watch as kids, an after-school special, just say no to drugs. That's what this film felt like. It was completely one note. It was unsurprising. You can guess the ending about 10 minutes into the movie. And despite Hugh Jackman's best efforts, I do think he's an excellent actor, and he did think he was uh, very empathetic as a father who's trying to find out what is wrong with his son. Laura Dern playing the ex-wife, what is wrong with her son. And Jackman's dealing with a lot of guilt here. You know, his son is pissed at him. You know, just kind of like the whale as well. Frazier's taking a lot of blame for his teenage daughter. His teenage son is mad at Hugh Jackman. You left mom for this young woman, Vanessa Kirby. You've now started a new life. You've got an infant son. Well, what about me? And so Jackman's trying to deal with the fact he's got this teenage boy. He's got his own guilt, his own issues to deal with. It sounds like it's provocative material, but I promise you it's not a good film. And it's got like 40% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's just complete dud. Uh, I mentioned the review off the top from Nick Shager. Here's one from Trace Savour. The son ultimately feels like it's depicting misery for the sake of misery. We, Cody was able to find one positive review from Rex Reed, <laughs> noted critic of The Observer. The Sun yeah. is a bold, harrowing, and unflinchingly sobering film that is admittedly not for every taste, I'll say, but an unavoidably intelligent piece of filmmaking for mature viewers that I highly recommend. When I send out the rundown to Cody on like the Thursday of the, the previous week, he'll often just hit me up like, hey, what movie should I watch if he has the time? Yeah. I, I didn't even bother telling you to watch The Sun. Like, there's, there's, no. Unless you want to be mad at me, don't bother no. watching this movie. I did watch uh, the first scene of this war movie you're about to do soon okay good i'll get to all quiet on the western front because that was the one i said listen of these movies i'm like what you're going to be into i'm like if you, if you like war movies you will like this by the way I just, um, I just without email. spoiling the review without spoiling review i'm just gonna say i watched the first scene yeah and i was like holy shit i'm watching the bucket list <laughs> and it wasn't because it was bad it was just like that first scene holy shit dude yeah it's intense. There's no question about it. So let's go ahead and get right to it. That would be All Quiet on the Western Front, our next film. Again, it came out a couple months ago on Netflix. I just haven't had a chance to see it. But I've been so busy with other movies. Uh, but it's fantastic. It is, as I mentioned in my honorable mentions, and again, my buddy Alf had recommended it to me. He was like, this is probably the best movie I've seen this year. And I was like, okay, I'll check it out. And I got the screener for it. As I mentioned, it is on Netflix. But that, that first scene, I mean, listen. Saving Private Ryan was the war film to end all war films, right? How are you going to top that? How are you going to top that for first 12 to 15 minutes on Normandy? It was just so passionate and violent and visceral and, and, and pungent. I mean, you could really felt like you could smell the gunfire. You could like see the soldiers like, literally trying to stuff their intestines back in. So all quiet on the Western Front, any war movie you make, you know you're going to up the ante. How are we going to top this? And to your point, this film gets you right in the muck. Like 1917 is another great war film actually from the last couple of years. Sam Mendes, I love that film. It's made to look as if it's one long, exquisite tracking shot, even though it ended up being something like nine different shots. Still remarkable to make an entire two-hour film like that. But 1917, all quiet on the Western Front. Listen, it's going to get nominated for Best International Feature Film at the Oscars. Bloody, violent. And as you said, that first scene, it puts you right in the hell, doesn't it? Dude, it puts you right in hell, and it puts you what I imagine I would be like. Because like, I, I didn't see the rest of the movie, but the way they're setting it up is this is a timid guy who doesn't necessarily seem prepared to be in war. Like, he seems overwhelmed. The whole time, I'm just like, dude, just hide. Pretend like you're dead. Just lay down and just, like, that's what I would, like, I'm such a coward. I have no, I don't have one one millionth of the bravery that these people that go to war do. So it's just like, I'm, like, imagining myself in that setting. And I would just be hiding in fear because it's terrifying. I don't think you're a coward. I think you're like any of us who's like, just can't even fathom what this was like. And you're right. It, so often this movie, it just feels like a suicide mission. Like, dude, you yeah. have no chance of winning. Like, there's, you can literally see the cannons coming towards you. Charge! Like, okay, he watches like go. four people. They climb this ladder, get shot in the head right away. Another guy climbs the ladder, gets shot in the head. And then his, his like, lieutenant comes up to him. All right, gives him a pat on the butt. Go ahead. And it's just like, Okay, I just watched two people in the last five seconds just go up this ladder, instantly get shot, and I'm just like, all right, I'm going. And he yeah. goes, and he, you know, and it's just, it was just like, it's obviously a, a great scene because it paints the picture, but it was terrifying, like watching it. I would, I literally was like, I know what the bucket list is. I need the bucket list of my <laughs> life after this scene. It's easy, some nice cheap laughs. Yeah. I was like, too much that scene. All Quiet in the Western Front. It's so good, it'll make you want to watch The Bucket List. That should be the blurb <laughs> for it. Uh, Johnny Oleksinski of the New York Post. It's sensory overload, tough, though rewarding viewing. I agree with Johnny. Johnny, former guest here in Cinefy. He's a good film critic. Three and a half out of four stars he gives it. Leah Greenblatt of Entertainment Weekly. By the way, over the holidays, I was visiting my brother, my nephew's niece's parents. I, when I'm on a, a flight, I like to do some reading. I tried to pick up an Entertainment Weekly. You know, they always do their best of. Entertainment Weekly 
unbeknownst to me, ran out of their print edition, I believe, April of this year. So I'm, I'm in the magazine store at the airport. I'm like, oh, they got a Vanity Fair, Margot Robbie. Okay, sure, Jennifer Anson's on some cover. I'm like, where's like your entertainment section? Because Sports Illustrated still publishes monthly, but I check that one. I'm like, okay, there's an article on Steph Curry. Got it. There's going to be nothing new that I don't know. There are other stories of the year, soccer, golf, whatever. Not interested. Okay. So I'm like, where's your Entertainment Weekly? I have to Google it. Entertainment Weekly, out of print since April. I'm like, okay, well, I have a book. Really? Like, yeah, out of print now. They're just <laughs> digital only. In case you're wondering, you're looking for your local Entertainment Weekly. But it's still available online. Leah Greenblatt, good critic of Entertainment Weekly. A film that feels both aesthetically dazzling and full of necessary truths. An anti-war drama that transcends the bombast of propaganda, mostly just because it's so artfully and indelibly made. We've got to get one uh, curmudgeon here, right? One Scrooge. It's John Anderson of Wall Street Journal, not the John Anderson of ESPN. Fully understanding the war, who does, may not be necessary in appreciating the disturbing, moving, and sometimes too beautiful production. But that production certainly puts a teutonic tweak on history, something to outrageous effect. Come on, settle down, John. It's a great war film. It's going to be nominated for, uh, for Best Foreign Film, as will potentially this film as well. It's Argentina 1985, and it stars Ricardo Doreen, who was the star of one of my favorite films of this century. It's called The Secret in Their Eyes. It's a film from Argentina. It came out in 2009. I absolutely adore that film. I've talked about it plenty here on Cinefile. I think Dan Stanzik and I did our, like, whatever, best films of the century when the New York Times did. The Secret in Their Eyes, I love. That's kind of like what Gene Siskel described as Fargo. A great film because it's a murder mystery. It's a thriller. It's a love story. I love that film. So as soon as I saw Ricardo Doreen was starring in this film, same actor, I go, okay, I'm in it just for him. Here's the story. A team of lawyers takes on the heads of Argentina's bloody military dictatorship during the 1980s in a battle Battle Against Odds and A Race Against Time. Santiago Mitre is the director, and it's written by three guys. Listen, if you like your courtroom thrillers, you're going to like this movie. This is how shocking this is, and very topical after Argentina wins the World Cup. This was 1985. This was a year before Maradona and Hand of God and all the rest of it. But if you like your courtroom dramas, right up your alley. Except in this case, they're taking on the government. That's right. They're prosecuting them because of a military coup. Think of how challenging this is. Although, and again, we do have the former President Trump who may be uh, facing some charges. So, I mean, you're literally taking on the military. Like they, they, they had a coup. And you have to bring up people who say that they were, you know, attacked by the military. And you're, you're trying this case ahead of the government. Like, it's just... It's Herculean odds facing Doreen and the rest of them. At one point, there's this, this one guy goes up there and he's being told like, what he was being punished with. And, and he said that he was told that he had to repeatedly say, I eat a lot of dick and my mother is a whore. And I'm like, oh my God, like, what a thing to, to just charge this kid with. But he's being beaten and abused. He won't say it. You know, other women are raped and like, just, just horrible, horrible stuff. And feel, again, feels like an open and shut case. The military did this, but again, it's the government. So you're, you're racing against the clock. You're racing against corruption, bureaucratic nonsense. Uh, but Argentina 1985, I thought was a very good courtroom drama. Do you, are you a courtroom drama kind of guy, Cody? Few Good Men, yeah? I do like a Few Good Men. That's about the extent. I like yeah. Liar Liar. That's, yeah, Liar Liar, great courtroom <laughs> drama. I'm with you on that. Great courtroom comedies. Liar I'm Liar is awesome. my ass. Do you mind? <laughs> If you like your courtroom movies, I think you'll uh, enjoy Argentina 1985. Um, ultimately, though, it's a movie that I think it's fair to say it's, a, it's an acquired taste like for, for not all audiences, which is totally fair. Anthony Lane of New Yorker, though the dramatic atmosphere could hardly be denser, it's also pierced by surprising shafts of comedy. There is courage to be had, Mitra reminds us, in preserving a likeness of heart. This is from Natalia Winkleman of the New York Times. Like a pair of old wingtips polished with wax, Argentina 1985 spins a notable piece of history into an impassioned courtroom drama flecked with quaint humor. And Michael Ordonia of the Los Angeles Times, apart from the moving testimonies of surviving victims, the movie's power comes from the desperate needs for justice and to prevent this authoritarian terrorist scourge from ever taking hold again. Yeah, speaking of like Oscar moments, Ricardo Doreen, the lead actor, I spoke of very fun. He's got like a good 10-minute speech at the end, um, which has a little bit of humor, but it's more, more or less very, very impassioned. It's kind of his, his Oscar moment. I'm sure the movie will do very well at the Oscar version uh, of the Oscars in Argentina. And as I mentioned, I think I'll get nominated here. All right, those are your movies. The Sun, I'm given one and a half Maple Leafs. It was a real dud. All Quiet on the Western Front, three and a half Maple Leafs. And I'll give Argentina 1985 three Maple Leafs. Our old movie is The Bucket List, which I had actually <laughs> never seen. And it was on the flight that I was taking. Same. See, yeah, so I was like, you know what? I'm going to go watch The Bucket List. And I really enjoyed it. Maybe it's because Jack Nicholson hasn't made a movie in 
15 years. But the story is this. Two terminally ill men escape from a cancer ward and head off on a road trip with a wish list of to-dos before they die. Now, I never saw it because I already got mixed reviews. I'm like, that ah, looks like one of these kind of warm, cheap comedies. But honestly, watching it makes you appreciate how great these two actors are. Not only Nicholson as Edward, but also... Morgan Freeman as Carter. Freeman feels like the main character, lifelong mechanic, now battling illness, but like gotta be the smartest mechanic ever. Like it's crazy, because this guy's on Jeopardy. He knows the answer to everything. I'm like, okay, I'm not not sure if this guy is really one of the like the smartest people in the world and he just happens to be a mechanic. Like, I get it. Life deals you some bum cards, you don't get to go to college, don't have money, understood. But a bit of a reach, but he's, anyway, genius mechanic. He meets Jack Nicholson. Nicholson, richest guy on earth, apparently, uh, finds that he's got cancer, even though he built the hospital. Like, he's, he put his name in the hospital if he wanted to. Hey, before we die, let's get a bucket list going. Freeman's making the list. Nicholson goes, I see it. I'm rich. Let's do it together. And off they go. And it, it sounds formulaic and silly, but I think a lot of it is really built in by the chemistry of these two actors, two obviously great actors, just having a blast together. I, I don't know how the production was, but it seems like they're really enjoying themselves, and it's uh, it's funny and it's sweet and you know where it's going to be sentimental you know where it's going in the end but i thought it was it was surprisingly touching and i thought it it earned its its heart tugging moments the bucket list what'd you think i thought it was exactly what you feared it would be i thought it was like two straight hours of like them having the exact same conversation at every place it'd be like oh we're on a plane we're about to jump out oh life man this life right i mean and then they'd go they were like you know with swimming with sharks and it's like oh man can you believe this life I don't know. I, I, I got it. They, they are, the chemistry, the chart, like both those guys, you see why they are who they are. Yeah. But I thought the, the movie itself, I, I, not for me. Yeah, you can see why most people have not talked about the bucket list. Why the bucket <laughs> list is not on many people's bucket list as far as movies to see. Like, that- basically, it's one of those movies you get the whole gist of it by the title. The bucket list, two old guys, they're doing some weird shit. They're coming to terms with mortality. You know, I thought Morgan Freeman's wife was a little bit of a jerk for like giving him shit for doing it. It's like you're dying and I've decided I want to travel. I mean, I get she's like, oh, you want to leave your family. But it's like if I'm terminally ill and I decide that I want to spend the last month, you know, swimming with sharks and jumping out of planes, then you need to eat whatever you're feeling and let me feel what I like. I felt like that. I was like, uh, kind of a jerk move by by Morgan Freeman's now wife. That's a good call because she's like unnecessarily harsh. You'd think, it's especially he's like, I've devoted my whole life to you. Like I've, I've raised yeah. three children. Like I've looked after everybody. I'm going to die. I'm going to go take a few months to myself. Is that yeah. okay with you? This incredibly rich guy just offered to do with me everything I've ever wanted to do. Oh, I shouldn't do that? Should I come <laughs> home with you tonight? Like I was just like, that was the only part that I got a little angry. No, but overall, a, a little point. predictable and, you know, a little sweet. I'm not like, it wasn't terrible, but you know what you're getting with this movie. Two and a half maybe. Beliefs. I mean, you watch the trailer, you already know what this movie's going to be. Like yeah. you said, when they're jumping out of the plane, I already knew that was going to be the worst part of the film. It's just like, oh, I hate you. I hate you more. It does look Lord. like they actually did it, though. Like, it looks like it looked like for this film, they those two jumped out and they filmed it. Like, it didn't seem like it was CGI or fake. That's a good call. We need to look this up, see if we can get some confirmation. It does look like those guys jumped out of the plane. Uh, how about Sean Hayes showing up? He's now on Smartlist, of course, does a very successful podcast. Sean Hayes, pretty thankless role for Sean Hayes, just being demeaned yeah. by Jack Nicholson. Just like, yeah, you're my little assistant. Yeah, not a great role for him. At one point, he's like, I like your idea because nobody cares what you think. He's just worried about the will. He's the assistant for rich Jack Nicholson. He's just basically like, so you're going to do your will, right? Are you going to do that? Or <laughs> It's kind of funny, actually. We do get some great one-liners as well. Probably my favorite one is when Nicholson says, I think it's about halfway through the film, he's like, you know, some things I've learned when you get to a certain age. He's telling Sean Hayes, he's like, you never miss an opportunity to go to the bathroom. He's like, you never waste an erection and most importantly never trust a fart <laughs> like i feel like that should be on a shirt somewhere like definitely tim Curtin has said to me he's like never waste an opportunity to go to the bathroom he's like when you're over 60 it's like do you need to go to the bathroom like always say yes if you see a bathroom just go bam never waste an erection and most importantly never trust a fart oh wow I, it seems like i was incredibly wrong according to imdb it, took, it looks like Nicholson and Freeman actually did go to India to see the Taj Mahal, but most of their international jaunts are studio scenes with CGI backdrops. The skydiving routine, too, obviously uses computer graphics to paste their faces onto the heads of stunt doubles. So I was wrong. Oh, man, that's, that's terrible. Because <laughs> I, I like the fact you were so confident about it. And it makes more been... sense in hindsight that these mid-70s guys wouldn't jump out of a plane. So I... Uh... <laughs> But, hey, credit to, credit to Rob Reiner. Great director. Rob Reiner showing off his skills. He was able to make it look very realistic. Credit Here's to a, me looking up something like that that quick. That's good work by you. 
<laughs> a, a couple of blurbs here as well. Mick LaSalle, who's a great critic, Simpsons Chronicle. The movie is caught in the crossfire of its two missions, to celebrate the universal things that really matter in life, friendship and family, and to celebrate what it means to live like Jack Nicholson. Yeah, that's true. That's a good one. That's a good blurb. Yeah, uh, cheap and flimsy. Connie Ogle, your hometown paper, Miami Herald. I thought Herald. that's where we were going to start in this episode with. I was thinking <laughs> cheap and flimsy. <laughs> that's what we begin 2023. And Noel Murray of AV Club. There are certainly worse ways to spend the holiday season than in the company of two charming old actors. Being reminded that human companionship makes life worth living, even if it makes dying a little tougher. That's the bucket list. As you said, you know what you're getting in for. I saw it on a plane. Where'd you see it, Cody? Where's it available? HBO? Probably. my house. Yeah, HBO Max, I believe. Well, HBO Max. Okay. Yeah. All right, last quick thought here. A little wild card here on the Golden Globes. Uh, as I mentioned, they took last year off because they had a lot of controversy. People were upset about uh, just the lack of, um, lack of tolerance within the ranks and just some behavior from their heads over the time. Brandon Frazier, for example, who's on the Oscar trail. He's not saying no to any appearances except for maybe Cinephile. He has already said he's not going to go to the Golden Globes. He's probably going to win Best Actor. He's like, I'm not going. I'm like, all right, well, the Golden Globes, by the numbers, give you a few numbers here. Notable nominations, 41 first-time nominees for the Golden Globes. Brandon Frazier, Diego Luna, uh, Sarah Pauly, director for Women Talking and Writer, Aubrey Plaza, uh, Rihanna. She's having a moment. Aubrey Plaza, right? She's definitely yeah. everywhere. White Lotus, people are loving her season yeah. two. Uh, Rihanna, Adam Scott, Michelle Yeoh, who I said I loved her and everything ever all at once, and Zendaya. How about 16 career nominations earned by Steven Spielberg? Previously won Best Director for Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan, nominated again for The Fable Man. 16 Golden Globe nominations. Career nominations earned by Kate Blanchett, who's not nearly as old as Steven Spielberg. She's got 12 nominations. Previously won Best Actress Drama for Blue Jasmine and Elizabeth. I didn't even realize this. There's one set of father-son nominees, Brendan Gleeson and Dom Hall Gleeson, and you saw the latter. Brendan Gleeson was in The Banshees of Inner Sharon, and Dom Hall Gleeson is from The Patient, which you and I watched with Steve Carell. Mm-hmm. How about that? Father and son, it's like you. It's like Greg and Chris Cody being honored. Hey, it's like right. Brendan and Dom Hall Gleeson. Tomato, tomato. Um, nominations by film. As I mentioned earlier, there's no real frontrunner so far this Oscar season. Eight nominees for my favorite movie of the year, The Banshees of Inner Sharon. Number two is Everything Everywhere All at Once. Six nominations. Babylon, again, love it or hate it. It's got like 55% Rotten Tomatoes. People who hate this movie, hate this movie. Three hours, self-indulgent, ridiculous. And then those guys like me go, come on, it's a good time. It's a party movie. Five nominees for Babylon. Five nominations, excuse me. Five nominations for The Fablemans, which again, I kind of feel like at the end of the day, Spielberg's going to come home big. Elvis, three nominations. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, three nominations, as well as Tar. And then two nominations for Avatar, The Way of Water, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Glass Onion, The Menu, uh, Triangle of Sadness, Women Talking, and we go. Nominations by distributor. Searchlight Pictures gets 12. A24 got 10, which I love. Netflix got nine. Paramount Universal had seven apiece. So the Golden Globes by the nominations. Obviously, there's not as much here in the TV, but I will tell you this. Nominations by TV show. Maybe this is the TV show we should all be watching. Tell you one thing. Critics love this show. Anytime I see a series or a critical blurb, I go, this is the show. Abbott Elementary on ABC. Five nominations, leading for all TV shows. Number four, The Crown. Dahmer Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. Four nominations, speaking of cannibals. Only Murders in the Building. Me and Billy Gill that, like that. That's the one. I thought you were going to say that one. I thought that one had it like, that, that was going to be the one that surprisingly had a lot of nominations. No, it, it's second. It's got four. Pam and Tommy. I never watched that. The White Lotus. I watched that. That that got a lot of nominations. Pam and Tommy got four nominations. Huh. That was fine. It's a good and I've show. Heard, I've heard you guys. I heard Dan was down on season two of The White Lotus. White Lotus, four nominations. I know Spatana's big into It's it. a good show. Yeah, yeah. Je- Jessica definitely loves that show. Yeah, uh, it's a good three show. Three nominees for Blackbird, That's, which I uh, like. Do you know who that is? Do you know who I'm doing right there? No, do it again. It's a good show. Oh, yeah. Hang on, hang on. It's like uh, Mike Myers? No. Martin I'm Short. Stifler's mom. I'm Stifler's mom. Oh, Jennifer Coolidge, of course. <laughs> well, it's a good show. It's a what's good you, show. This, you, this is one of those ones, I, I get a laugh on that impression once I tell you what it is. It's one of those ones people can't figure out what it is, but once I say what it is, people say it's good. I kind of thought it was a man doing a woman. Like I thought it was Mike Myers doing like the voice of SNL where he's like, <laughs> you know, verklempt, you know, talk amongst yourselves. I thought that's what I we always doing. squint. What are you talking about? <laughs> people love like Stifler's mom. To this day, people just love Stifler's mom. Um, yeah. Barry gets a, nomina- a couple of nominations. The Bear, Better Call Saul, The Dropout, House of the Dragon. So once again, Chris Felica, Chris Felica, The Bear, The Bear moving on. By the way, The Bear, the bear oh, now man. off to Fox Sports. Big news. That's there. one of those ones. It's like I'm sure he got a bag, but <sighs> that that's a show, man. I wouldn't. There's a there's few shows in like sports media where it's like. 
You might need to take less to stay because that is such a good like. I don't know what he can do at Fox that's going to be better than College Game Day. No, he made the right decision. He, got he the did. Bag. He's done College <laughs> Game Day. He climbed the pinnacle. He made himself his own role. Like, there's never been a role he got like paid. that. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not judging. I like it's. It's. I'm just saying. Yeah. He he's taking. He's making that sac. I think he's just making that sacrifice. I have worked my ass off. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm going to sign this deal, get paid. Yeah. And I, even if it means I get seen by a lot less people now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Good for him. I love the dude. He was one of the first guys when we do in Mystery Crates when we were at ESPN. He came on and did like a one-on-one interview with me. Like, nice. like he was cool. He, he was always cool with our show. I liked him a lot. I like it. He's definitely a fan of you guys and what the whole show represents. I forgot yeah. to mention, by the way, the two worst films of the year. Maybe you don't listen to every cinephile. Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, which yeah. I thought was witless and joyless and aggravating and obnoxious. And also White Noise. Dan Stan's like a big Adam Driver fan. It's on Netflix. It's easily one of the worst films of the year. I mean, that movie wow. came out. And you're talking Noah Baumbach, writer-director, marriage story, Driver, Greta Gerwig, they had a premiere at Venice. I knew once I heard the reviews were respectful. I go, okay, that means this movie blows. Uh, White Noise is awful. It's currently available on Netflix. And also Blonde, I thought was terrible. Remember the Anna Armas film? That's, uh, Blonde was another yeah. movie. You thought, hey, big expectations. Those are three of the worst films of the year. If they're looking for movies to avoid, those three were definitely. That was stinkers. the, uh, what's it called, right? Uh, Marilyn uh, Monroe film. Yeah, yeah, I saw that one too after. <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna say, you saw or did I watch that one for the review? I don't remember whether I reviewed that one, but I did watch that one after. Especially the scene with JFK was just, I mean, all-timer. Um, yeah. Speaking of aggressive scenes, I talked about Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, which if I had like a next five honorable nominations, I uh, might have been on there as well. I mentioned earlier seeing it on a plane, how I got that parental advisory warning, but I had a sense when I was watching the movie that it was edited. Well, I took it upon myself to go check out on Hulu, and I, I kind of felt like it was the ending that was different. Maybe there were some other cuts as well, but the last five minutes... Boy, was I right. And boy, thank God they edited this movie. I would have been just ashamed to no end watching that on an airplane. My God. I mean, it's like four minutes of straight copulation, full frontal Emma Thompson. Uh, I think the dude might be full frontal. You definitely see a lot of his ass. I'm like, oh, thank God. if I'd seen that on the movie, like, whoa. So I want to thank uh, American Airlines for editing Good luck to you, Leah Grand, and offering a warning. That's not a film I've, seen on an airplane. I remember I watched Wedding Crashers once on a plane, and the boob scene, you know, like when he, they're doing the montage of hanging out, and there's like a 10-second scene where you see like a 10-second montage of women falling on the bed with their breasts, yeah. and that was on it. And that's the most shame I've ever felt on a plane where I'm like literally like holding my hands up. And like I, I bet you there's got to be good stories out there because I don't think, like I said, I saw the boobs, so – there are some airlines that don't worry about that stuff. I, there's got to be some good stories out there of people just being mortified on a plane. Well, my friend Cabby once said, he goes, this is the great question he asked me. It's like an existential question. It's not, by the way, if you had like one week to live, what would you do? Or what's in your bucket list? The question is this. What is worse, guilt or shame? Because hmm. guilt, like you're like, oh my God, I feel guilty. I feel horrible. I feel like I'm, but shame is like deep in your heart. Like I'm, I'm ashamed of who I am as a human. Shame is just, like, I think shame might be. Because guilt, yeah, shame is just like. Like when was the last time you said to somebody, I'm ashamed of my behavior? <laughs> the only time I, I say that to myself is when I'm like eating fast food when I shouldn't be. I would say the most shame, because I don't feel guilt. Like, see, that's what I think. That, that's a good example of I don't feel guilty there because I'm doing it to myself. I'm not hurting anyone other than, I guess, my health. So for some reason, I don't feel guilty about that. Yeah. But if like I were to run into somebody I know, I guess if they're at McDonald's too, I wouldn't feel shame because they're there too. But like if I was like at a McDonald's drive-thru and like some guy just pulls up like, Chris, what are you doing? Like, like that, like I would start to feel a little shame, I feel like. Yeah, of all the shameful worse. things, that's a good like that. I feel like if 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 your most shameful act in your entire life is eating McDonald's occasionally, you're a pretty good guy. I'd say actually a, a thousand percent. Normally, when I think <laughs> of guilt and shame, it's impacting others, right? Like I feel guilty how I treated that guy, right? I'm ashamed that we were making fun of him, and then he hurt us backbiting. Like those are like true emotions. They're like, oh my god, it keeps me up at night. Like I feel horrible <laughs> the way I treated that guy. Eating a cheeseburger? No, I I have zero guilt and I have zero shame. But you, you don't feel right like people you, judge there you. are people in your life that like they're, they're like 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 Jessica Smetana. She finds her. She's like a healthy eater. She has new gluten. Like if 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 she stumbled upon me at a fast food place, I would just feel like obviously the shame wouldn't be like you know demoralizing shame, but I would feel shame. I would be like, yeah, you, you're judging me right now, and I feel that shame. No, you're you're definitely right. Like there's definitely. I was on a call with a guy, and I remember I had to stop. I was starving. I was stopping at McDonald's for myself and the kids, and I didn't want him to hear that I was in the drive-thru. So I'm like, he's definitely yes. going to pass judgment. But then yeah, I, was, yeah, I, just, yeah. I was like, I got kids, man. They're hungry. Like, the oh, kids, I, I was going to say, the kids isn't out there. If you got kids with you, give my kid a Happy Meal. You're a great dad. By yourself yeah. in that drive-thru? Yeah. 
Got problems. Ben Lyons would definitely judge me on, on fast food because he's like very healthy. Like he's like six patana. Like he'll I don't eat like it. The people, like, like Jessica won't judge you for eating. She like she's talked about her fast food times. I don't like the people that are genuinely judging you for that. Yeah. Like I don't know if Ben's like that. I'm just like, come on. Like, no, get I, don't, over I don't think he's no, no. Ben. Listen, we've had him over the house. He had pizza, but I could tell him. Like I said to my wife, I go, you're gonna have to have some salad too. Like he's not gonna have three yeah. pieces of pizza. He'll have one piece of pizza. Yeah, and he's gonna have a you salad. Can't do pizza wings. And garlic bread, we got to work in it. Let's work a salad in there. Yes, yeah, yeah. That, 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 she's big on that. If you're just like, dude, come on, let's have four pieces each. He's not yeah. going to react well to that. <laughs> uh, last thought here before we close up shop, New Year's resolutions. Are you a New Year's resolution kind of guy? Anything you're planning here? Well, I'm like, I don't like New Year's resolutions ain't got nothing on me. I'm a, I'm a weekly guy. I'm the guy that thinks every Monday the diet starts. And yeah. by about Thursday, it's over. So that's 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 the way I live my life. Is that what, every this? Monday I I show up to work like I'm eating healthy this week. Right. And, it, and it, Monday I crush it. Tuesday I might have like you know a little sugar here or there. Wednesday I'll probably have a cheap lunch. And by Thursday I've just fallen off the wagon <laughs> and I'm eating whatever I want. To your point, I think like 80% of New Year's resolutions have to do with food and exercise, right? I yeah. think the majority of people go, I'm going to hit the gym this week and I'm going to stop eating fast food. And then by week one or week two, it's gone. Almost as annoying as New Year's resolution people are. Uh, People late in the year that are tweeting out, hey, I don't want to see you at the gym on Monday. Yeah, those uh, people. I don't want you clogging up my gym. I'm always there. Yeah. I don't want all you New Year's people. Like, all right, hey, I'm trying to better myself. How about you You do your gym thing, and if I decide I want to go too and your gym's a little busy, how about you live with that? Don't be the guy that's like, oh, I live a healthy lifestyle, and then I'm going to judge people that want to join my healthy lifestyle to start the year. It's like, just don't be a jerk. Let me, even if, even though I know I'm lying, I know I'm not going to stick with this gym routine, but let me do it the first couple weeks of the new year. I don't need your tweet demoralizing my my mindset before I even do it, you jerk. I love it. I fired up Chris Cody. And you're right, because I noticed it yesterday at the gym. I'm like, it's a little bit busier than normal, but I'm like, hey, good. Like, is right, it, but is you're not like, oh, these assholes, that'll, they'll be gone. And you're like, look at the, the, these people. They're always looking at another guy that's going to be there all year and being like, they'll be gone in a couple weeks. It's like, yeah, they will. Do you feel good about yourself predicting it, jerk? Yeah, speaking of gym etiquette, last thing. I, I The guy next to me on the elliptical that was telling a story about how like this – like his one of the girls in his building was just begging for him, and so he's like, "Yeah, I gave it to her like four times on New Year's Eve." I'm like, I, and he's speaking like a loud volume. And I'm like, you know, I, a I'm like, I'm calling BS on the story. Yes, and B, like, that's you, it. You don't need to overshare. Like, and he, and he saw me look over, kind of like, oh, I'm not sure if you want to sell that story. Was like, he oh, just yeah, like, yeah. do you I, know this guy, or is he just like saying these things out loud to he anyone? He was saying that'll it to the guy him. next to him, but loud, clearly loud enough that I could hear it as well. Oh yeah, I got her, yeah. bro. Yeah. yeah. She wanted it, and I gave it to her. It's like, dude, <laughs> just the worst. Just the worst. All right. We talked movies. We got some gripes off our, uh, our, our chests here. Thanks, as always, for supporting Cinephile. Please go to Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe, rate, and review. Next week, a full review of one of my top ten films of the year, Decision to Leave, the South Korean film. And Tom Hanks has a new movie. Well, Tom Hanks bounced back after a dreadful performance in Pinocchio, after disappointing work in Elvis. His new film is called A Man Called Otto. I've already seen it. I'll give you the review next week. Until then, I'll see you at the movies.